You are listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. One of Us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio-based or banner ads, but on a case-by-case basis. If you are interested in that, contact us at oneofusnet at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at 2 5 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of Us needs and appreciates all your support. Hasn't even been that long this time, but Digital Noise is back. I mean, it's a big break between the last one and the one before that, you know, pandemic and all that. But we're back on track again here. They're starting to actually send us copies of stuff. Poor Aaron, who's been like working overtime for Screener Squad as it is. I'm like, oh, yeah, did you forget about Digital Noise? Oh, shit. Giant stack of movies comes to his door. Oh, yeah. And TV shows. <laughs> and TV shows. Don't forget. <laughs> and TV shows. No, I certainly have not forgotten because we do have a big list of stuff this week. Is kind of funny there's a lot of like these companies trying to play catch up with things it's like criterion for instance i got like five criterions in the mail in like a week i'm like what the fuck that. is this it was like the criterion stack <laughs> yeah i had to call him and go hey um y'all sent me everything except for the one that i actually asked for she's like okay here's the thing somebody who's in charge of our mail room totally screwed up it's been chaos across the company uh, what was the one you wanted? I'll get that to you. And do you not mind re- reviewing the others? I'm like, yes, I will take free Criterions <laughs> and, and at the cost of me having to watch and talk about them. Oh, no! Darn it! <laughs> Such is the trouble that is our lives. Such it is. Well, that, of course, is Aaron. I'm back! Papa Bear. <laughs> He is back. He's back, baby. You don't have to wait as long as you usually did because he's on all the reviews. There we go. He's also here with me on Digital Noise. And we've got a stack of stuff to talk about. So without further ado, let's talk about it. And, you know, we mentioned the Criterion. So why don't we just start off with the, in fact, stack of Criterions we have for this particular week. Criterion, of course, being one of the most high-end home release companies out there. Although, weirdly, they still have not gotten into putting out actual 4K releases for 4K players and TVs. It's because they're going to have to re-release, like, their entire catalog in 4K. And they're sitting there going, can we just, like, wait for, you know, the Data Crystal format to come out next? And then we can just go straight to Data Crystals? Right. Well, I think... It's odd, partially because they do traditionally have the highest, best quality copies of films you're going to get on there. I mean, they're for like two years now, their films have all been sourced from 4K remasters, right? When that was even possible to do. It seems like it wouldn't be a huge step to just go, okay, fuck it. This is that remaster, but now you can actually watch it on a 4K TV and get everything out of it you're supposed to. You know, my memory was it even took them a while to adopt Blu-ray itself. Like it they did. were doing DVDs and then... Then they kind of were like, no, no, we'll, we'll do Blu-rays, but we'll do like Blu-rays on our special sets. And they're all boxes and they have like everything in both discs. 
I mean, they haven't even gotten around to re-releasing all their biggest stuff on DVD on Blu-ray. They're still gradually going through that. And honestly, I don't know if The Great Escape was a previous DVD review for uh, release for them. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if it was. Obviously, what with Father's Day around the corner, The Great Escape is like the ultimate Father's Day movie, right? Like that's when I think of dad movie. I think of The Great Escape because that was one of my dad's favorite movies. That's probably one of your dad's favorite yep. movies. It's like everybody's dad's favorite movie, no matter what age you are. If you're a dad, well, it's too late. That time has passed. Because now watching The Great Escape, which I'm not going to say is a bad movie on any level because it's not. It's a fun movie. But wow, is it kind of tone deaf and all over the goddamn you know, place. It, I actually didn't have a problem with a lot of the tone. I, I thought it touched on some interesting things. It's just... It's an hour too long, is what it yeah, is. It's and it's long. And like so, I had not actually seen The Great Escape before. I've seen bits of it, mostly oh. in the the last like hour of the movie. Um, yeah. But as a sit down, I'm going to watch the whole thing from start to finish. Never seen it before, so this was a new experience for me. And and like I I mostly really liked it. I get why it was important, but I'm kind of just jumping over the plot. Uh, basically. The movie, for those who have not seen it, like myself, um, tracks a POW camp where the Nazis have gathered all of the worst prisoners who keep trying to escape into one single camp. And it's like... We, we should say not, it's not a concentration camp. It, yes. This is a, a camp for uh, soldiers. True. It, it is a POW camp. It is decidedly lighter in that regard. And, and in fact, one of the things that that I think in a modern American film would have been touched on with more detail and more nuance was that it's also not run by the SS. It's run by, you know, some Nazi commander who was clearly in the German military before. And then they got taken over by the Nazis as it were. And like, I think that's probably where a lot of the tone deafness you're talking about comes from. Cause it is, it is interesting watching the commander be portrayed not as a sympathetic character, but as not quite an evil raving Nazi. And well, and, I mean, like, it, it's because this is a gentleman's military type film, right? This is John Sturgis who did a lot of sort of gentlemanly type films like, like uh, the Magnificent Seven and Ice Station Zebra and Gunfight at the OK Corral. Uh, he, I mean, in World War II, he directed documentaries uh, as a captain in the United States Air Force. And I believe if you're at that level, then you're probably pretty much just hanging out with officers. Yeah. And this idea was that like, oh, it's this, it's, it's a very civilized war, right? And the whole thing feels like a, a not as light Hogan's heroes yeah. until all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait, the Nazis were really bad in the last like 20 minutes of the film. Yeah, no, like I, I would have liked them to have gone into more detail and in showing like that differentiation or maybe I, I, I want to say the complexity of it, but fuck it. They're Nazis. Why, why sympathize with Nazis? He's still an evil bastard, but the movie itself tracks the prisoners as they decide that we're not going to just have breakouts. We're going to organize as an entire camp and we're going to break the entire camp out at once. And we're going to flood the countryside with so many prisoners that they're going to be more focused on trying to get us than they are winning the war. And it spends the preceding three hours tracking two hours of them prepping and an hour of them escaping, where not a lot of them actually got out. But Well, I mean, a lot of them got out, just not yeah, a lot of them survived <laughs> that experience. But like, like, I mostly enjoyed it. It's just you could lose a ton of fluff, and this would have been a significantly stronger movie. Uh, and it does have that 
like when it gets into that last act of like the six acts or so that it's got, it's kind of like, wow, that's a bummer considering how long this movie has yep. gone on for that had you really rooting for this whole team and work. I mean, it feels like a, like a heist movie, this whole series of stages of a heist and watching him work out only to be largely ending in horrific tragedy across the board. I mean, I, we were like, yeah, but it's world war two. It was a horrific tragedy. Look, this movie doesn't know that. Well, it, it trust me. It, it, it's, <laughs> it's Hogan's heroes. It's something that we're <laughs> going to come to a lot, or at least I am, which is there's, the truth and then there's a good story as well like it yeah it, it doesn't work as well in a narrative sense you're right but there's no denying this cast is amazing oh it's very funny it's very eminently watchable i mean the first two-thirds of this film i think are fantastic like really enjoyable it's just that last third that is just feels so out of touch with the rest of the movie it's like what kind of movie do you want to make here because that doesn't feel like you it's like someone came in at the last minute and said no no no, no you got to make this kind of movie oh, see. but steve mcqueen james garner richard attenborough james donald charles bronson donald pleasance james coburn hans uh -huh. mesmer i mean I mean, it's a really fantastic cast who are all great together on screen, despite the fact they probably shouldn't be since they're from all over the world. And a lot of these people never just are not coming from the same schools of acting at all. But everybody kind of works it, together. It works. And I think it works because they play a multi-ethnic, uh, a multinationality group of people. So, like, uh, you have Australians, you have New Zealanders, you have people who are British, who are French, who are Spanish. Uh, there's like one American. And so like it, it's eclectic enough that it, it lets them all kind of work together well for the most part. Uh, so this is indeed a 4K digital restoration that MGM undertook. Uh, it is the best yet version of this that is out here, although it's very close to the, the uh, MGM release, I think, from a few years ago. Not that difference. Now, there is a uh, audio, two different audio tracks here, which are... Uh, DTS HD Master Audio 5.1 and English LC LPCM 1.0. I think both of these, I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure both of these also were the ones from the MGM one. So when it comes to that, you're getting with largely the same one. What's the advantage of the criterion where you get the uh, really nice leaflet in here with an essay by critic Sheila O'Malley and the technical credits. Uh, there's all the bonus features, a lot of which are archival bonus featured that gathered together here, yeah. perhaps in, for the first time. I liked watching The Great Escape Heroes Underground, which is a vintage program narrated by Burt Reynolds for 44 minutes. That is a look at w the real people who this movie were was deeply inspired by. Uh, so there's, there's, I think the only new one is uh, critic Michael Sragow. I don't know how to pronounce S-R-A-G-O-W, but there you go. Discusses the production of The Great Escape and the life and legacy of its creator, John Sturgis, that was just conducted in L.A. in January. But everything else here has appeared here and there in other places. It's still a very solid release. I mean, definitely, if you're a Criterion collector, this would be a good or one if, to have. If you say. like The Great Escape, this is a worthy buy, most definitely. So that was the one I actually asked for from Criterion. Let's get into the ones I didn't, but they sent anyway. And the first of those is Dance Girl Dance with a comma between every line. And I was like, uh-oh, what the hell is this? Um, I'd never heard of this. Nope. I doubt, I'd, I don't think most people except really serious students of film or people who specialize in the history of 
feminist film would have even heard of. And even then, this is kind of an obscure no, little which... title. Now, what's fascinating about it is it's directed by Dorothy Arzner, who at the time, in uh, from 1927 until she retired from feature film directing in 1943, she was the only female director doing features in Hollywood. Yep. That's kind of insane to imagine, but it is true. There were actually feature film directors before her. She started, but things changed after code. Everything got different in the, you know. Anyway, this is uh, Maureen O'Hara and Lucille Ball, which is where I perked up because, come on, yeah. I love Lucy. Well, and I've never seen her. I know of her as a producer. I know of her from I Love Lucy, but I've never really seen her outside of that. And that was Well, they both play two dancers. Uh, Lucy is kind of a cynical um you know, she's the one who plays it up for her sexuality. She plays it up for, she's like, this is just about the money well, and taking advantage of men. Whereas I was going to say, she's the star, you know, she's the she's one the, that well, everyone because, comes to check out. Yeah. Cause she's got that natural, you know, just charisma exuding yeah. sexuality, which is never th something I thought I'd say about Lucille Ball, right? but it is in fact but true. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Maureen O'Hara, however, is an aspiring ballerina she takes dance very seriously and is kind of i mean she doesn't she's not a bitch about it but she is clearly kind of grossed out by the lucille ball way of doing things well, and both of them like this tormented guy jimmy uh who comes in very very drunk played by lewis hayward and that doesn't work out really for either one of them he's still in love with his wife who's left him anyway so bubbles which is lucille ball's character <laughs> she gets goes to work at a burlesque club uh <laughs> whereas judy which is o'hara goes for in for an audition with this very rich guy who is apparently has his own private collection on the top floor of his skyscraper of ballet dancers that near as i can tell just dance for him and his friends in not a sexual way i don't know what the hell was going on there yeah, it's weird I, I assumed they were preparing for a show that we just didn't get to see maybe it was very it strange was. but uh that doesn't work out for her either and she soon accepts a job from Bubbles as basically because Bubbles has turned into this huge burlesque queen. She's like mega popular at this big theater that makes lots of money, but of course isn't deeply respected. But she's like, look, you can come in and all, you never have to do burlesque. You just dance ballet. What she doesn't realize is she's there so the audience can boo her off the stage and get all excited and ramped up for Lucille Ball to come. Anyway, obviously that situation ain't going to last for so long and things start to go downhill from there. Now, here's the thing. This is not a wildly interesting movie. No, it's not. <laughs> it's, it's, it reminded me of the um, not just dance, but the modern day dance ones that Channing Tatum got his start with. Um, but like, it reminded me of those where like really why you watch this movie is for the dancing. Cause there's a ton of it. And every time they dance, they play the whole dance out from beginning to end. Hmm. But like, it, so here's the weird one for me. This is a feminist film. And I put that in quotations, which I get that for the time it came out, which I think was like 39, that, that this was no 1940, that this would have been considered a feminist film, but uh, I, I warn viewers, it's a feminist film in that the main characters are women and occasionally they talk about things that are not men because <laughs> like, that's about it. Uh, all the men I mean, it's talking about the compromises young girls would, would have had to make in pre-war America to be able to even pursue their dreams yeah. on any level. I mean, everybody is super stereotyped and it definitely doesn't end on a super feminist level <laughs> for sure. But this does does do stuff with that. And like you said, just that passing the Bechdel test alone for a movie at this time is a huge deal. And I mean, that and the fact that the director is, you know, 
the only female director working in Hollywood. Well, and the dancing was good. Like it has that thing that these early Hollywood movies do where it doesn't really have a strong narrative structure. It just kind of flows through the story that just kind of like, there's no real ebbs and flows. It just kind of happens. But if you're used to movies of this era, that's not going to bother you. And the dancing is really interesting. It is really fun. Like I, I, I had more fun than I didn't with this movie. Okay. No, and I didn't dislike it per se. I mean, I really enjoyed watching Lucille Ball play kind of, I mean, not completely straight role, but somewhat straight role. Yeah. Uh, There are bonus features here, but not a lot. I mean, there's honestly, this is a movie that would have been all but forgotten if not for that feminist angle, quite frankly. And a lot of people have said as much. It has since, though, been selected by the Library of Congress uh, to be stored for being culturally, historically or aesthetically significant. Uh, it's thought of as Ar- as director Dorothy Ar- Arzner's most intriguing film, as Wikipedia oh. calls it, based on Library of Congress's statements, a media mediation on the disparity between art and commerce. Sure, I suppose. Um, if you're studying feminist film, this is probably one you're going to want to start with, perhaps. Agreed. <laughs> uh, there's a new program, Be Ruby Rich, which is a film critic talking about Arzner's career made in 2019 for Criterion. There's Francis Ford Coppola, where he remembers his interactions with Arzner when he was studying at UCLA and he uh, discusses her career. This was a brand new one created for Criterion in 2020. And then there's an illustrated leaflet. Let us move on to the third and last of the Criterions this week, and that is Wildlife. This is the newest one on this list. I'm actually kind of surprised. I mean, while they're known for releasing new releases, this is one I did not picture they were going to add to their list. I just watched this in 2018 because, and only as they sent a screener out for us to watch for Oscar consideration, I was very interested because it's directed and co-produced by Paul Dano, who so far has a pretty interesting career of working behind the camera before this as a writer. Uh, And it was written by him and his... Not wife, but, you know, the, without so much putting a label onto it, wife, Zoe Kazan, who they've worked on stuff before, based on the 1990 novel of the same name by Richard Ford. I Right there, I'm going, okay, the work they have done has been significant and interesting. I'm very interested to see what Dano looks like as an actual director. He's certainly worked with some really great directors in his life, now, like some of the best. And I think in terms of cinematography and direction and the choices he made, he completely in every way lives up to the high expectations that I had. Because Wildlife is a gorgeous looking film. Uh, It's stunningly shot. Now, the story, when I saw this the first time, I went, yeah, I'm having trouble staying interested. But for whatever reason, the second time I watched it, it clicked with me a lot more, which isn't to say I'm going to rave about it here. But Carrie Mulligan plays Jeanette. Her son, Ed Oxenbold, plays Joe. By the way, Ed Oxenbold was in um, Better Watch Out. He played like the best friend of the main character. Right. Yeah. But Carrie Mulligan's married to Jake Gyllenhaal, her husband. They're having a difficult time because he has lost his job. Well, he didn't lost it. He knows where it is. It's just somebody else doing it, as one comedian once said. And he's having trouble in a masculine sort of way dealing with that fact of dealing with like, oh, I'm, I I don't want to do some lesser job. I mean, for God's sakes, the man was a, a, a caddy at a golf course. I'm not sure how much lower you can get, really, but it was a different time. This is a, a period piece. But he's having trouble getting out there to get another job. She's like, well, maybe I should get a job. He eventually takes a job working as a firefighter 
for these wildfires that are raging in the mountains nearby, which she's very upset by. First, it means he's going to be gone for months. Uh, second, it's very dangerous. And third, it doesn't really pay much. But for him, it's more of a masculine thing. And he's been drinking too much and making bad decisions. Their son, Joe, is very upset about all of this. When he leaves, Jeanette wastes almost no time in casting her eye around for a better deal, which uh, her eye lands on Bill Camp as Warren Miller, a local kind of rich widower who she sets her designs on possibly being their new sponsor, as it were. And this, of course, causes problems with young Joe, who is not happy about the situation, but doesn't really know how to act. This is a very down-to-earth, very quiet family drama that at times gets loud, but it never explodes in the way that you think it's going to. Certainly not with a film that there's constantly got fire in the background. Uh, but I did find the second time watching it through this Criterion release, I really enjoyed the subtleties of it. So, like, I... I'll, I'll admit that I don't know that this is a movie that I'm going to put on regularly, but I, I, when I put this on originally and I started to get into it, I was like, "Ugh, great. Like, yay, a movie about financial troubles. And <laughs> I, I found myself really resonating with it. Like, they don't ever really call it out, but if you do the math, Jake Gyllenhaal and, oh God, I just immediately blanked on her name. Uh, Carrie Mulligan. Carrie Mulligan, thank you. They got married when they were like 18 and had their kid when they were like 18. And so they're two people who have been spent their entire lives trapped into what they should do and what they think they should do and what society tells them they should do. And this moment where he basically in, gives them 24 hours notice and disappears gives Carrie Mulligan this chance to see who she is without him for the first time. And like, as somebody who... Like I got married to my wife very young as well. Like I, I think a lot of people who do that as they grow up and grow up into different people than they were, go through this kind of a thing, hopefully without a kid. Um, but yeah. like, it, I really got into that story and there was a lot, not the text of the movie, which you're right, was very understated and calm and it really never gets loud, but just the, the subtext on what's going on under the, and why she's doing what she's doing and like watching her lash out at her kid because she loves her kid, but she also kind of hates him because he's the reason she's in this mess and like all that kind of stuff just wrapped into one go. It, it was a phenomenal film. Like if, if you can watch, if you're into these kinds of relationship dramas, this is a top tier one and it is gorgeous. I just, I wish they spent more time in the open expanse because when they do, uh, it's it's jaw dropping the way he shoots the wide open planes and the wildfire in the one scene that actually shows up. And it's interesting. I kept thinking about what future films from him are going to look like because there is a sort of tentativeness in staying over long on those types of shots in the film. But Dano already really gets mise en scene completely. Every shot is so beautifully set up, but he never gets showy to the point where he's not giving his actors lots of room to do what they do. And these are some damn good actors yeah. who need that space. Carrie Mulligan commands here. She is incredible. And I feel like if you watch this movie and you're one of those people who goes, oh, man, what a bitch. No, you're, you're wrong. It, you're stuck in... Yeah. You're not being thoughtful. You, you know, anybody who rushes that. I mean, you're the same people who probably hated the wife on Breaking Bad, you know? <laughs> well, it, it's, it, the most interesting thing is that the main character of the movie is the kid who who 
on paper in the text of the movie doesn't really change because he doesn't say a lot. He's just kind of there watching this all happen. But seeing how he grows and shifts underneath, uh, like I just blew me away as far as the quality of his acting. And it was very real. This is a, it is a very nuanced movie where nobody is really good and nobody is really bad. And even at the ending, once they come to sort of an understanding as to how this family is going to proceed, whether together or apart, uh, you get the sense that these are all real people and not just archetypes, which is rare in a cinema or in a movie. Agreed. Well, this Blu-ray has, from script to screen, a new program with Paul Dano, Zoe Kassan, and Carrie Mulligan and Jake Gyllenhaal discussing the original novel that inspired them, as well as talking about their collaboration on the film. There's The World of Wildlife, uh, another one, new one with Paul Dano, cinematographer Diego Garcia, production designer Akin McKenzie, and costume designer Amanda Ford talk about the style of it and how it affects the narrative. There's post-production, new program with Paul Dano, Matthew Hannum, and David Lang discussing how this final version came to exist. Uh, Paul Dano and Richard Ford, a conversation between Paul Dano, the director and writer, and the novelist, the original novel, Richard Ford, talk about it. And then there's an illustrated leaflet. So it is a good deal. I like seeing whenever a director is yeah. excited about getting a Criterion release, as Paul Dano clearly was making all this new stuff. And it's good for... stuff, too, because like, I watched part of the writer one, and they really went into where he got his inspiration and what he was trying to say, which in movies like this, I feel like the filmmakers are always like, no, 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 I leave it up to your interpretation. And it was nice to have them go, okay, look, this is what this was really about for us. And this is what it meant. Yep. All right. So moving on to our next title into television, we got a whole block of TV here in the middle is Watchmen. Now we've already talked about Watchmen at length. Everyone has talked about Watchmen at length. I mean, and not even just the show, but the comic book, the the mid-range, somewhere between crappy and okay Zack Snyder film, depending hey, on I which scene it. you're watching. <laughs> I think it's got one of the best, best opening credit scenes of all time. Other than that, it's okay. It, it's a giant, messy, uh, ugly, wonderful movie. Like, I love it, but, but I also admit that it's, it's, it's rough. <laughs> it's also a complete and utter lack of understanding of any yes. of the themes that Alan Moore was d discussing and using his original comic book to discuss. I mean, literally, the guy's like, oh, I thought it was just a superhero comic is what it felt like. This, on the other hand, is a, all about that understanding of what Alan Moore was trying to do, because this is not a adaptation of the Watchmen. This is a sequel to not the film, but to the original comic book, which means yes, a giant space squid fell on the city and killed millions of people as opposed to, I can't even remember what they did in the movie instead, but uh, not that that in and of itself makes the graphic novel better. I'm just saying that makes it clear right from the beginning that this is a sequel to the comic okay. book and not to the movie where it's years later, uh, people are still dealing with the fallout of said millions of deaths, uh, both psychologically and, and economically. There's white supremacist groups called the Seventh Calvary that's popping up all over the place. Uh, the Tulsa De police, De police department, because they're basically afraid of being doxxed, are all wearing masks, even though superheroes are illegal, kind of they start sort of taking on superhero identities yeah. themselves. Yeah, <laughs> you know, they all have their own name, like superhero type vigilante names. The now, that's just the setting. I don't want to go too deep into where this this series goes. It is a one and done single season show. And I will just say 
that's a good starting point. If you haven't watched it yet, you don't know anything, you should just go pick it up. So, uh, w- with without giving away any story details, because I agree, you, you need to go in naked. Uh, you've seen the comic, that's great. You don't even really need to have, it just adds a lot of color to it. Um, I, this might be one of my favorite single seasons of television ever put to film. Uh, hmm. I, I love it. And it feels honestly, especially with everything that's been going on lately with the protests and the police violence and our oh so lovely government imploding. It feels like this is something that got made eight years from now. Once we're through this sphincter of pain and somebody was like, nah, yeah. I'm going to talk about shit that went down. Like it is explicitly about race. It is explicitly about police overreach and it is complicated and nuanced and legitimately taught me about one of the greatest crimes that our country committed on the black people in the opening five minutes of the show. Like it, this is a great show. Watch it, please. Yeah. If you're wondering about what all the, the upheaval is about president Trump announcing that one of his big stops campaign stops is Tulsa, Oklahoma uh, on Juneteenth, which is celebrating the end of slavery in America is told you'll learn when you watch Watchmen, why that is such a direct, I mean, like there's no question that was a, a, a direct choice yeah. to say something because oh. Tulsa, Oklahoma is choice of one of the most horrific crimes against African-Americans in this country's history. And that's a centerpiece for this show that goes into a lot of the background of understanding more where the original characters, some of which aren't even that are just talked about in the original Watchmen graphic novel much more than appear, but the background of those characters, how they affect what's going on now, uh, what happens next, but none of it is, none of it feels like you'd expect from a normal superhero comic thing. That is a sideline. Let's They treat it as if this was real. This really happened. Yeah. How do real people react in a world where this is what really happened. And they really focus on the racial issues and power issues and economic disparity issues. And all the time, it's still super fun. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like I'll be honest. Like I was really kind of iffy on this because uh, this is a streaming show. And I know this is a physical release of a streaming show. I don't fucking care. This is my pick of the week. I love the last show. and there's a ton of bonus features on here, like a, of like little of generally short ones. Although there's some longer ones, like there's a 2019 New York Comic Con with Damon Lindelof talking about his story about you know getting started with this, along with most of the cast there. Uh, most of this though is a little you know very specific. Here's a thing about Sister Knight. Here's a thing about the Squid. That sort of thing. It, I mean, it depends. That I enjoyed what which of them I did watch, but I think all of them are also. I think all of them you can watch on HBO yeah. as well as bonus features. I'm not really sure. The main reason I was kind of like, I don't know if I want this to be my pick of the week because they are so eminently already available. But I guess I'll decide when we get to the end. <laughs> but I think we can both agree that you should, if you've not watched Watchmen yet, you should. I do say, I mean, yes, you don't have to have read the comic, but seriously, it's like, arguably the most important comic book of all time. Like uh, it's arguably the best comic book of all time. Not having read it is why are you, 
Yeah, you, you, I mean, you what should are you doing? Have... It's like ignoring an entire art form by deciding that you're not going to read what's considered to be. I mean, it's not like like is someone handing you War and Peace or something and going, this is one of the greatest Russian novels that only take you six months. No, you will finish this in a day or two and you'll be glad that you did. Well, and then you can watch the show and you'll be even more happy. It, and it, it adds, and this is the last thing I'll say, like it, it adds color in a good way. Like you're right, you don't have to have seen it. You can watch this and you get a complete workable, good, great even narrative but like yeah. knowing where the characters came from the those that they do reference and those that do show up because not all do only a few do um like there's a sequence where they really go in and explain like what's been happening uh, it i cried through that entire episode because i knew what had happened and i knew where that was coming from in the context of everything it was beautiful well warner brothers has put out the amazing first season of Harley, the animated Harley Quinn. And yes, I know if you're not familiar with it, I said amazing. I am not kidding. This is like Rick and Morty or the Venture Brothers or something of that, or Archer of that type of humor, really smart humor mixed into the world of DC characters and unapologetically. And it is amazing. Yes. I think the only real reason why this is notable that coming out on DVD only with no bonus features of any kind on here is because for some reason, HBO Max has chosen not to include Harley Quinn on their list of stuff that they have put out that is also on their DC uh, streaming channel. I'm still baffled why they don't just get rid of the DC streaming channel give, give it time. and fold it in. I'm going to call it. Huh? I'm going to call it right now. Yeah. Within one year, two years tops. DC Universe no. is going to become a comic-only service, and all those shows are going to siphon over to HBO Max. It's going to happen. And I, I think you're right. Either way, Harley Quinn season one, like I, I actually started it and stopped it instantly because the first episode was so bloody that I was afraid that it, it was a violence as a humor, and it was um, Bo who was like, "No, no, 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 no!" Like, trust me, go back and watch it again. And this is an insanely intelligent show. It takes about an episode and a half to get used to Haley Kuoko, um, her yeah. voicing Harley Quinn. Like, it is different. And, and it's a little bit off-putting at first because we're so used to what we've heard in the past. But that instantly goes away. Uh, King Shark is just mwah, beautiful. So much so <laughs> that, like, I, I can't imagine him a different way now. Or uh, Alan Tudyk as Clayface. Like, this is just second one to the very last second of every episode hilarious smart on point it is great go watch it uh to be clear as you said kaylee Cuoco plays harley quinn she's in arkham asylum when we meet her convinced that she just needs to wait and joker will break her out well this is kind of about this first season about realizing when you've been mistreated this is a very if you for lack of a better term woke a modern into intellectual series, series, if you will, of comedy, which is to say comics have always been woke more than they weren't. I mean, since the beginning. So if you're complaining about that, you're the dumbass, not the, yes. not the show or the creators of the show, whatever off my soapbox point being, it really is kind of about that with Harley Quinn coming into with her along with her best friend, who's helping her Lake Bell voicing poison Ivy. Oh. You need to get under out from under his psychological control over you and it really explores that in a good way and i mean while this is happening she kind of builds her own crew with ron funches as she's king shark who yes is amazing tony hale as dr psycho <laughs> obviously they're picking from like the uh the d-list characters here to some extent dr psycho who by the way is aggressively uh anti-feminist and gets called out for saying the c word in the first time he shows up and then the entire arc is about him trying to redeem himself 
perfect. <laughs> uh, Alan Tudyk as Clayface, who's kind of a, a lovable, a lovable dr- uh, drama dummy, you know, uh, which is a funny way to play him. Jason Alexander as Cy Borgman, <laughs> which is not in it as much as the others. He's like the landlord who wants to be cool enough to hang out with them. Yeah. Sort of J.B. Smoove as Frank the Plant, which is Poison Ivy's sort of, if she has a henchman, that's her her Audrey too, if you Who? will. And it's just this great amount of characters that are going to appear throughout the show. One of my favorites being James Ado- Adomian as Bane, who is my, now officially my favorite portrayal of Bane ever, period, end of story. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> so funny. I mean, this show makes me laugh out loud repeatedly, and I think the season, second season is even better than the first. Oh, I haven't seen it yet. That's awesome. But uh, we are going to move on to our next one, which is The Deuce, which you have not seen. Have not. The Deuce, you, you say. <laughs> the Deuce is a David Simon show, which means the guy who did The Wire and... Um, Treme and Generation yes, Kill. Yes, Treme. I'm sorry? And Generation Kill, which was a miniseries. You know, I never watched that one, That's but I did watch Treme and The Wire, and they're both, you know, pretty good. I think I think I could say they're pretty good. And I will say that, uh, controversially, I like The Deuce better than either one of them, with the possible exception of the end, which I have issues with. But this continues with its story over several decades of Times Square in New York and the sex industry down there, starting with sort of the birth of it and ending with it being taken over by, you know, Disney, essentially, with the city going, no more of that. This has got to be a tourist destination, following a whole collection of characters, including, uh, good Lord, what is his name? Uh, James Franco playing two characters, Vincent and Frankie Martino, twin brothers who become deeply involved with opening up a lot of the sex places and bars and and connecting with the mob down there. I would say if there's another main character here, it's Maggie Gyllenhaal, who is Eileen uh, Candy Merrill, who starts off as a street prostitute who refuses to get a pimp because she says, I can do this on my own, and eventually becomes a writer, director, producer in pornography uh, as it's first taking off. So anyway, we're following these and many, many, many other characters over these decades, some of which have already gone from the series in the third season. Like most of the pimps, they're gone by this point because this is the 80s. They're like, yeah, there's no pimps anymore. These are all they have like uh, mob run little brothels sort of or massage parlors, if you will. But the third season is good. It's maybe not as eventful as the others. It's certainly the most familiar in, to our generation in terms of the way it represents, you know, pornography. It starts getting really into how New York's pornography scene started to die just as California's was exploding with directors like the Dark Brothers and other people who would show you a little too much how familiar I am with pornography in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> but man, as you might expect, some dark as fuck shit happens this season. Main characters die and die really tragically and horribly, but in a way that makes sense and fits with what's going on. I, I was really hooked by this. In fact, it's funny. I was sitting watching it. And my wife was sitting out there just doing work on her computer and kind of half watching it. And she got totally sucked in and then went back to the beginning. It was like, okay, I can't watch anymore. I like this now. I'm going to go back and watch this from the start of the show. It is excellent. And it's only three seasons. And this third season is the only one they haven't put out on blu-ray they only put it out on dvd no idea why weird i mean maybe it's all coronavirus associated or maybe it's just sales of that sort of thing aren't what they once were and maybe it was just as well hey we want people to get hbo max i I don't know i still don't think they put the wire out on blu-ray no they did Did i have it okay yeah yeah i've got that and treme on blu-ray they have both separately or a big box set 
Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if 4K is on the way of like, those as well. Honestly, it, anything by this creator is worth checking out. He used to be a journalist. All of his work is very, it's very true to life while still being entertaining and, you know, TV eventful. All of his shows tend to be that way. Even Generation Kill that you haven't seen. Like, I, uh, he, I can't Now that I know this. that, I'm going to have to go seek that out. Is that on HBO too? Uh, I, it was an HBO show. Um, it was their their approach to the iraq war uh when we went in and so like it's very much about like we don't have any equipment we don't really have anyone to shoot at. what are we doing here i don't know and then oh my god there's five seconds of intense action and so <laughs> yeah it's good that's fair it's good he does good stuff now my one main criticism of the season is the way it ends as i mentioned before and i'm not it's not that I hate it. It's very well done for what it is, but this is a show that has really strayed away from using anything but hard, cold reality and certainly no magical realism. And it ends on a long extended magical realism Aww. sequence with a main character decades, like James Franco, one of the brother characters decades after the end of the actual events of the show, coming back to times square, walking around and encountering all the dead people uh, or, or, you know, either people are dead or people who are just not like that anymore. Like he's old. Everyone else looks like they did in the first season it's, it's the of the show of who interact with him and talk with them. And it's like, okay, I don't like that. <laughs> that is disappointing because everything else this creator has done. It's, it's almost like a documentary except just it's narrative and filmed with actors. So it's disappointing that they go that route towards the end. I thought so too, but it's not so disappointing as to ruin it. I mean, the show has a proper ending. This is more of an epilogue. You could literally turn it off before it start when it starts and not miss anything. So anyway, let's go on back to movies. Yes. Meanwhile, in movies and by movies, I mean, well, people Kinda? kept insisting these were movies. We're going to go with a, a duo of art films that sound like genre films, but aren't really genre films. And we're going to start with the, wildly critically acclaimed at the 2019 Cannes Film Festival, Zombie Child, with no E, mind you. Zombie Child. Uh. This is a 2019 French drama directed by Bertrand Bonello. Uh, a lot of people were raving about this movie so much that I was like, man, I can't wait to get my hands on this. No, I did not think it was going to be like, you know, a Lucio Fulci film or something. More on that later. But I expected something different than what this was I maybe expected a narrative i i mean there's a narrative is there it's is just there really? i'm not sure what they were trying to get at and i've read five different reviews of this and all five had a wildly different interpretation of what this film was trying to say like wildly different uh, like, and i'm like i'm not i don't think anyone knows what this film was trying to say well, is my point it's a film that should have been a documentary is the case so like it it follows the this guy who in the very beginning in 1962 is turned into a zombie, which I, I don't mean like a George Romero zombie. I mean, a real life, honest to God, uh, Haitian voodoo inspired zombie, which is where basically they poison someone and it, it simulates their death. Then they dig them up and they keep them uh, on a combination of drugs, which is not entirely known. And it basically puts them into this suggestible state. And so they're used as slave labor. Uh, can, can I illustrate that just real sure, briefly and means. say that, first off, a, a really fun interpretation of this is the movie Serpent in the Rainbow by Wes Craven, which is a very pop horror film, but is loosely based on a 
quote, also question mark nonfiction yeah. novel that had come out about a couple decades before that about this situation. Now, in the years since, a lot of people have questioned the veracity of this even being a real thing at all. Like, I mean, there's still the jury is still out whether the Haitian zombie is actually a real thing in terms of the drug that makes you like go into a coma state that's undetectable. Like you can't tell the difference between that and someone being dead and all the other details were still not clear, but this goes from the premise that it is true. Yeah. So, so, so that's the setup and they have an actually really interesting film sequence where this guy goes through this and he, he is the, the zombie I put in quotes and then eventually kind of wanders off and escapes. And, and then it kind of, cuts forward to present day france uh where it follows a bunch of annoying personality list white girls who are enamored with their one black friend who basically comes from haiti uh whose parents have died and this girl starts to tell them about her connection to this practice and how it was involved with her family and they are fascinated of course and they start becoming interested both in the girl and in the practice. And it kind of loosely follows a narrative as they get interested in and then try to participate in an actual ritual. But like this sounds like we're telling you about a movie that has a plot and might even be a horror movie. But really, it's it's 60% white girls sitting around talking about their problems. And then the other... 30% is cutting back to this guy kind of trying to rediscover himself in Haiti after he escaped and came back from being a zombie with also randomly throwing in an ant who the aunt of the black girl who is actually performing a ceremony. Like I, I kind of hated this movie. This should not have been a movie. If he really was interested in, in this practice, it, I would have, been far more interested in him making like a documentary where he researched the stories and gave I mean, us even the real guy information even the guy in question in the film is based on a real person who supposedly this really happened to uh claire vias narcisse okay um I'm not sure why that makes this more relevant or not, but like I said, a lot of people went crazy for it. It just goes to show you not every movie is for everyone. Yeah, I, I did what you did. I went online after actually, because I, I was looking on this going like certified fresh and reading all these rave reviews and just like, what the hell? And I, I didn't see a review below three stars. So maybe you and I are the crazy people, but I aggressively dislike this. Well, another film that got really great reviews that I think both of us were at the worst, at the best mixed about is another film that is a little arty drama film that sort of has a narrative that is advertised as a genre film that really is not. And that is Time Zone In. So uh, this guy Enzo and his girlfriend Mina are preparing for a long distance relationship, right? And so they go to this place called the Time Zone In. It's a bed and breakfast where, no, it's not actual time travel, but the idea is each room is set to a different clock, a different time zone, uh, and the guests have to adhere to the rules based on the owner's uh, setup of that. Like, you're not allowed you're not allowed to enter each other's rooms. You have to eat food that only is native to that time zone. You can't spend any more than two hours in each other's company, um, whereas Mina picks Paris, Enzo picks London. Uh, they break the rules almost instantly. They meet another couple. Sorry, go ahead. The rules don't even make sense because they, like, take away your phone and your communication devices and... That's how you communicate in a long distance relationship is you text yeah. and you call. 
So, like, just, oh, I, I was already, like, in the very opening minutes going, oh, movie, come on. But they meet another couple, Katia and Marco, uh, who are trying the same thing for a long-distance one. They, once again, can't stick by the rules for, like, two seconds. Uh, meanwhile, the owner's niece, Gaia, shows up and causes total problems where she says, relation monogamy is stupid and you're stupid pretty much well and like so so that was kind of the moment that this movie lost me because she walked in and basically is like da 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 oh by the way i have two boyfriends and like that's it yeah and then it was just what fuck you you can't do that and instantly I mean, everyone's just angry and yelling at each other and and defending their points of view so aggressively like they're so offended that everyone didn't immediately believe everything they do which which because it's because this movie isn't really about trying to show these as real characters it's about lecturing on this idea of um, matrilineal polyamory and like yeah that's agreed that's the movie the movie it's a lecture the movie's argument the movie's argument is to tell you that you are wrong for being monogamous. Yeah, and, and I and maybe you are. I don't know. I just don't care that much. I don't think it's really that important of a question, quite frankly, like the movie seems to. Uh, I think for some people, monogamy works out great, and for others, it doesn't. And the movie just doesn't really care to discuss that angle on it. I mean, even at first, it's just the one character who's like, admittedly, you're like, okay, she's the bad guy. Who's like, no, no, uh-uh, I refuse to listen to your perception on things. It is not okay that you have multiple boyfriends. And I'm like, if I'd been there, I'd be like, oh, for fuck's right. sake, shut up. <laughs> Thank you. You know, but then it becomes clear as the movie goes on that the movie is so on the side of said niece who is anti-monogamous that it just gets kind of dull. And, like you said, lecturing. Well, this is, both of these movies, Zombie Child and this, I think would have been far better served being documentaries on the subject because they touch on this match. I keep, I hope I'm saying the right word on this matrilineal society. And like, that's interesting. You can tell a good story there and talk about the values of polyamory. I have some friends who are polyamorous. It's a valid lifestyle, but like this format, this narrative I put in quotes just did not work. I, I again, aggressively disliked this movie. A third art film with genre pretensions has come out that, oh, no, wait, this one actually is a genre film, and it actually is exactly what you were kind of hoping it would be, probably, with a movie called Why Don't You Just Die? But I would argue it's still decidedly kind of an art film at the same time, at least in terms of people who like movies like Delicatessen or Blood Simple. It's an art film. It's much more fast-moving and extremely, overwhelmingly, at points, violence, uh, violent. This is a Russian film. If you listen to Screener Squad on the site, or you just put it in the search engine on the site, you can see the review that Aaron previously I was on, was on for this movie. <laughs> uh, I had wanted to see this at the time. I was just overloaded with stuff I had already picked, so I did not end up going on to the review or watching it. So I was glad that Arrow had decided to put this thing out, which, interestingly, according to critic, regular critic on the Arrow releases, Kim Newman, who's always entertaining to hear him pontificate, he spends his 25-minute extra feature basically comparing this to the classic westerns, describing the whole film as a modern-day western, but as a bottle film, where everything in one, almost everything in one room, talking about movies like Treasure of the Sierra Madre and other films he thinks compares what? very favorably to this movie. I don't know about all that. I mean, I see his point. I don't think you have to look at that movie this this way to get what the movie is trying to sell. I also don't think this movie is going to be for absolutely everyone, as it is. 
just drastically bloody as fuck. And these characters, there are no good people no, in no. this movie. The, like, everybody is horrible. The, and why don't you just die? Which for a movie like that shouldn't come as a huge shocker. Idea being this guy, he, his girlfriend has said, my father like raped and abused me for years. And he's like, well, I'm going to go and have a talk with this guy in terms of possibly murdering him. And shows up to his apartment with a hammer tucked behind his back. Well, it turns out said guy is a cop and kind of clues on relatively quickly that all is not on the up and up. And they get into a knockdown, drag out, bloody as fuck. They honestly both should have been dead by the end of fight. Only for the younger guy to lose and be tied up. Well, things go on from there as we're like, okay, so maybe the father really wasn't that. So if that was the case, then what was all this about? Was it really the daughter that sent him? Was this person even related? Or if they were, was there some other relation? A third character comes in as well, as along with the kind of mousy, always quiet mom. Uh, there's multiple sequences of, of just exploding violence in this movie, I mean, like just fountains of blood throughout it. Literally, no one would have survived past 20 minutes in this movie, is all I'm saying. But who cares? It's filmed in a very vibrant, cool, fun manner. I did admittedly, there was a point I'm like, I just wish you gave me something to like about one of these guys or someone to root for. I don't even know who I should be rooting for here at all. But that doesn't take away from, I mean, that's me and that's a failing for me as a watcher to some extent, I think, more than it is a problem with this movie because I do think this is pretty solid. I don't know, like, I I ended up being on the same uh, wavelength that you are. I'm not going to go into too great a detail because I already have a 20-minute review where I talked about it, but, like, uh, I also had the issue with the characters. I think that this is filmed really well. I'd be intrigued to see what other movies this creative team has. I think that it it tends a little far too much to let's show torture so we can have torture because that's funny. And it would have been better served to removing some of the torture and adding in a little bit more character so we could have gotten used to who these people were. Like They do some flashback sequences with the father and an additional character that kind of adds the background for like why there's stuff in the walls and what's going on. And I liked all of those sequences, but past the initial opening, I kept kind of getting a little annoyed every time they returned. And it was like, let's screw drive somebody's ankle. Yay. Um, <laughs> so like it, it was okay. I like the idea of it more than I like the actual execution of it. I, I, you know, it's funny. I like the execution better than the idea. <laughs> I think of the other way. Cause I'm like, this plot was interesting at first, but then it literally never goes anywhere. Yeah. It's just like, wow, y'all need to move this shit along. Cause it's one room and more stuff should come into this. But I love the way it's filmed. I love the, the style, the vibrant way that they shoot the violence, which is incredible. I think this director has got really better things in front of them than the super low budget movie. Agreed. It is exciting to watch. It's just that the excitement fades after a while because I don't think the plot is as interesting as they think it is. But uh, like I said, there is that bonus feature with Kim Newman. There's 27 minute behind the scenes. Man, the director here is just so excited to be making this film. Like it's almost when you watch the bonus features, he is just a huge dork and you're kind of excited for him. There's four short films by the same director. The longest one is like 30 minutes that are all also very violent (laughs) in a fun sort of way. If you like that sort of thing. (laughs) And there's an insert booklet with cast and crew information and all that in an essay by critic Neil Mitchell. Let's move on to our next film going way, way back and talking about films that like, all right, so Blue Underground put out a lot of their classic, what they consider to be, or some people consider to be in horror, classic horror films 
on Blu-ray in amazing three-disc lenticular cover uh, from 4K masters that they themselves created like a year and a half ago, right? And here they are, like not even two years later, with the actual 4K releases of them because it was easy because they already have the 4K masters to go from. They just have to put it and code it for a 4K player television. And the first of the two that we're talking about this week are is uh, Zombie or Zombie 2, if you're Whatever. in Europe, <laughs> called that because it was marketed as a sequel to George Romero's Dawn of the Dead from 1978. This came out in 1979. Um, it was definitely not a very, very, very influenced by that film, no question. Uh, you know, I mean, even even Dawn of the Dead had cooperation with another Italian director, Dario Argento, who in the uh, Italian release, I believe, had actually filmed some scenes for it and indeed had created the soundtrack for it, which was slightly different than the American one. Uh, we have talked about this. Like I said, we just reviewed the previous one. It was great. Zombie is Lucio Fulci, a lot of people would say his best film. It's certainly, I'd argue, his tightest, most easy to understand it, film. It, it's but his most it, actual, this is a movie, movie. Yeah. But it's also, just like every other Fulci, pretty much, just the goriest fucking thing you have ever seen in your entire life. Hey, just, just Sharks versus Zombie. Get the famous shark versus zombie <laughs> film. If you've ever been to an Alamo draft house playing a horror movie, you've probably seen the clip of the shark versus zombie. They love to play and have since there was an Alamo draft house because it's a great scene. There's a lot of great scenes. My favorite being the wooden stake through the it. eye I scene, which is so, <laughs> oh, it's so fucked up. You know, that's the reason. So you offered this and the other title we're going to talk about to me, like, Hey, do you want to watch these in 4k? And I was like, no, I don't think I need to watch zombie in 4k for that express reason. <laughs> uh yeah it is pretty intense but this is great man i love this i mean the real question is all right so let's say you're one of those people that uh already bought the blue underground previous set and why wouldn't you it, it was absolutely fantastic yeah, set no question great. about it i mean i still have mine i am not getting rid of it because it comes with the argento soundtrack uh argento produced soundtrack for it as a separate disc on it which this New version does not include. This also doesn't have the lenticular cover, which is super cool. Yes, I'm a dork. I like stupid things like lenticular covers. We So sue me. But is there anything new in the way of bonus features? Well, this does, in fact, include uh, one of the three original Blu-ray discs, the one that was the bonus feature disc on there, which all with all the extras from that. As far as I know, this doesn't leave out any of the extras except for that separate disc of the soundtrack there are uh, a, a new i think there, there's just a few new things but they're pretty minor there's um when the earth spits out the dead an interview with stephen thrower where he uh, which is a uh the author of beyond terror the films of lucio volci which talks about his career and i'm not i want i thought it was on the other disc but it says it's new here which is a inter introduction uh by guillermo del toro but whatever it doesn't matter there's a ton of of bonus features here, two different commentary tracks for a film that is not going to be up everybody's, you know, alley. But for those who do love Fulci, this is a must have disc. Uh, I would argue as much as Maniac in 4K is probably a must have disc for people who love that particular movie. I'm the weirdo who kind of whispers, mutters to myself at a festival when people are talking about it. I like the Elijah Wood remake better. Sorry, sorry, but I do like Bill Lustig's Maniac. I f first saw it. I saw it for the first time long after I saw the remake uh, on the Blue Underground release from like a year and a half ago, which is also <laughs> excellent with a lenticular cover and three discs, one of them being the soundtrack. So I have not seen the remake. 
This was the first time I've ever seen Maniac. And I made it about 20 minutes into the movie. And then was like, you know what? This is really feeling like a remake of Fritz Lang's M that was released in Criterion a while back. And I was like, even like going onto our One of Us site and being like, hey guys, like, this is what I'm thinking. Am I crazy? Like, this is a remake of M, right? And yeah, it, this is a fucking remake of M through and through, which like gave me an appreciation for Maniac that I did not expect walking into this movie. I didn't expect to be like, yeah, cool. This is a 70s exploitation remake of one of the greatest serial killer movies ever made that like birthed the fucking genre. Uh, it's it, it kind of doesn't have a narrative, which doesn't M doesn't either. It, it tracks the actual serial killer itself as he goes through and basically kills woman after woman after woman until kind of the universe or fate kind of rises up and gets them uh, to a point that when we were talking about this on the website people were even it was it's not really a structure it's sequence one and sequence two and sequence three um which it kind of was delightful but like i loved this movie this was really great i'm really excited to see the elijah wood movie now even though uh like it, it definitely is is problematic like this is this is definitely a movie not to watch if you're squeamish or if you have issues with violence against women because there's a lot of it i mean there is i, I mean like any horror film from the 70s or 80s to be fair but it's very this is a very brutally graphic violent film for sure with rape and and brutal murder in it but it addresses what what the hell is this guy's problem anyway with women <laughs> which i guess is it savings grace saving grace that it kind of ends with being yeah man it's that's not cool <laughs> <laughs> uh, i do genuinely like this movie it, it's this is probably a better really better looking release of this film than the director William Lustig ever would have imagined it de it would get or deserve but here we are 4K the release of this film that does look and sound absolutely tremendous with it's a two disc set it does not once again come with the soundtrack but it's got all the extra features from the other ones uh from the previous Blu-ray 4K release of this i believe it's just those i don't think there's anything new on this but you know what the hell oh. man it's Oh, go on. I, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, I was going to say, right. I will say this. In regards to both Zombie and Maniac, I kind of feel like, okay, this is the pinnacle. Like, whatever format comes after 4K, you know, until we get to fucking holographic projection, like the holodeck in Star Trek, I, I don't think you can make these movies look any better than they do right now. I mean, they already have 8K televisions, you realize. Which isn't, I did not realize that actually, which isn't to say yeah. like, like these are the best transfers in the world. Like they're good. It's just that the way they're filmed, the film stock they're on, there is only so good that you can get until you're splitting hairs. And I feel like, yeah. And also I feel like we're there. So good. There's so only so good you can get, uh, until you end up looking, getting that effect where you over crank a projector or something, you know, too many frames per second. And it looks like a Spanish soap opera. Yeah. You're like, okay, these haven't, I mean, they don't, I haven't seen a 4k release yet that has crossed that line, but a couple that came close <laughs> where it's like, this is too clear. Yeah. I don't want it that clear, but I'll tell you a lot of these are 
as perfect as you're going to get. And I think none of the 4K releases we're going to talk about this week illustrate that as strongly as the Jaws 4K Blu-ray digital set that have come out that is tremendous. Now, I have the previous Blu-ray set that came out, which is this is just the bonus features from that. And honestly, that's enough. The Blu-ray features from that are fantastic, including the the making of, it's a two-hour, over two-hour making of that is among the, among the greatest making of a movie features ever made. It's so exciting and funny and cool. It's as it's almost as good as Jaws is itself, just in a different yeah. way, obviously in the way of a making of a movie, along with a lot, a lot of extra stuff here as well. There is an upgrade between the Blu-ray, the previous version of this, and this now in celebration of 45th anniversary, the 4K. It is an improved one. It now has a awesome lenticular slip box. Yay, go lenticular. <laughs> I love them. Such a dork. Uh, and a something that wasn't with the previous one there's a, a pretty big book that comes with it that slides into right right into the case which is really freaking cool as shit i i was very impressed with this release i mean i don't know what there is we're not going to describe the plot of the movie no. jaws i don't know what to tell you if you're if you don't know what the plot of the movie jaws is then what the hell are you even listening to this for go watch jaws for christ's sake it's like one of the all-time greatest movies ever made. i do want to call out something that the 4k transfer did that i had never realized before which is to realize like how I, I don't want to say drab, but how un how simple the cinematography is in the original Jaws because yeah. there's a ton of like blue shirts on blue jackets with blue jeans on a blue sky and all the characters dress in very simple, not poppy colors. Like I, I went into this going, I'm really excited. And in the beginning, I was a little going, I was disappointed almost going like, wow, this, this 4k transfer isn't that good. And then I started really looking for the fine detail and started realizing like, Oh, like, look at that. Look at that yellow sweater popping the way I've never seen it before. Uh, or, Oh, Hey, like that shot's actually a little fuzzy. And I've never noticed that before until now that I can compare it between this and the shot that came before it because they were shooting like nothing else and were out of focus a little bit. Like you can see a lot of the filmic uh, nuance in this that you've never been able to see before, which was really cool. (laughs) I completely agree. It's, I mean, having watched the Blu-ray one recently, which is also tremendously great transfer and looks fantastic. This is just a little bit better. And that's, and when you have a 4k TV, you want a little bit better. Well, you want a lot better, but the last one was so good. You're not going to get a lot better. You're just going to get that one nice step up decidedly more clear. Sorry. If you don't already own the three, well, first of all, Jaws worth it. Own it, please. It's a great movie. Um, If you don't already own the previous set, this is an absolutely must buy because the special features in this are amazing amazing like th- that documentary you were talking about is great and it also has the the shark is still working which is the the movie not necessarily about how they made the movie but about the impact of film and culture which which is also a feature yeah, length extra <laughs> that itself is worth buying i remember i upgraded to the previous set because of that special feature alone and like this has oh. everything it's gorgeous it's wonderful and can i add as well for those of you who are sound nuts and jaws is such a great soundtrack and such great sound editing it's got a brand new soundtrack a dolby Atmos soundtrack that adds extra channels for the overhead so that alone is really a cool reason to get this if that's your deal here but you do have the inclusion of the previous version of the audio track as well if you choose from to if you want that yeah this is see this is why this was going to be my pick of the week there's literally nothing bad yeah, i can say i know about this. i know it's just that the watchman is like, like this was the other one i was depending on i will say though chris my wife hates you 
because like three or four weeks ago i got on a spielberg kick and i watched jaws and i walked around the house seeing that farewell and adieu yield spanish ladies shanty that quint sings and then, then you handed me this disc and for the last week i've been walking around the house singing that song so my wife and I my know. son my son even is like dad stop singing that it's not a song <laughs> I know. I have this. I get stuck in things like that too. Now I'm like, because we've been, I've been watching and rewatching, uh, um, oh, what is it? Why don't the Shadows show? What is it? Why well, can't remember the name? Oh, of it. Uh, Cause, wait. Um, my brain is dying because I'm all. Oh, the vampires? Yes. Oh, uh, like we. What, what we do in the what shadows. What we do in the shadows, yes. Yeah, I've been watching and rewatching the episodes of that show, and I keep saying now, because I've seen the, the, the Council of the Vampires one like five times, and I'm like, the Skype is. Glitchy. <laughs> I love it. All right, let's move on. This is actually a new release. Hooray! Yay. We summon the darkness. This is a new horror, horror slash kind of horror comedy film that takes place in 1988. Sorry, it doesn't take place now, but it is a new pro- film. I promise. It takes place right at the height of the satanic panic of the 80s. Man, you guys have no idea how fucking stupid that was. Living through that, it was so dumb. I mean, it was just, like, ridiculous. Yeah, like, I was four, so, yeah, I don't have any memories of that. I vaguely know what <laughs> happened. That was it. Well, we follow three uh, metalhead girls, Alexander Daddario, hooray, Maddie Hassan, and Amy Forsyth, as they're going to a big rock concert. Uh, before it, they meet three rock metal dudes and make plans to meet up. Like, oh, yeah. She's like, one of them's like, yeah, my, my, uh, my dad has my a house. She's got a house. Yeah, we got a house like about thirty minutes from here. Why don't you follow us out there, and we will uh, we'll party. You party, I party, and you know they're out there and they're all drinking and having a good time until it becomes clear the girls might have something nefarious in mind. And I don't want to go too. I, the sad thing is that's relatively early in the film, and I don't want to describe the plot much more than that because we really start getting like there's a lot of like oh surprises along the way and twists, and I don't want to Agreed. really spoil any of them. Yeah, so I saw this at Fantastic Fest, and this was what I saw when I couldn't get into Knives Out. Like, all you guys were like, no, we're going to do Knives Out. And I, I, I signed up as a backup, and I remember loving this at Fantastic Fest. So watching this again, I was kind of nervous, because, you know, festival blinders are a real thing. And so it was a big tell to see if I would still appreciate this in the same way. And I still love this movie. I really think it's great. It's a small scale kind of throwback horror film. You're right that like there's a little bit of an element of comedy in it. There's some drama to it. There's some delightful religious commentary, which I enjoyed. And like it reminds me, you know what it feels like? It feels like something that would have been a Shutter original. Like, here's some low-budget, cool little horror film that isn't for everyone, but for the people who dig it are going to love it. Yeah, I don't disagree with any of that. I think that this maybe have been more up your alley than it was mine, although I still enjoyed it. I think there was a movie I wanted this movie to be, and it didn't end up being that movie. And I was kind of disappointed when it was clear this was more... Uh, you know, which sounds way up my alley, the whole like, hey, aren't religious people ridiculous and, and evil? Uh, <laughs> that should be my movie, right? But I was uh, looking forward to something where the devil was actually going to pop yeah. up and, and stuff like that was going to happen. And it's not that kind of movie. It really is a let's somebody is really mad at organized religion type of movie. And that's fine. I'm all for that. I just 
I think as it went along, there's a point where the twists are done on the whole and it's just kind of coasting on the same thing. And you know where it's going to go from there on out. You can kind of predict about by the halfway point, you can predict almost everything else that's going to happen that's in this fair. movie. And there are some very nice moments. I really like the direction of this. I like the, the what gore there is, because there's not a huge amount of gore, but what gore there is is well done. Johnny Knoxville has a, a funny and weird little role as sort of the head of this mega church in it. Logan Miller plays you know, the likable one of the young three of the three young men who are trapped in this horrific situation. Alexander Daddario is just over overwhelmingly bursting with energy on this. I mean, she is she is a fine young actress and she proves it here yet again that not only is she completely just st stunningly beautiful is also an incredible actress but can carry a movie oh, on her shoulders. Which she does. Like if she this does. didn't have her in it it wouldn't be anywhere near as good. Although I will give the movie credit for making a character who has a small bladder as their major character, like defining thing and makes it work. <laughs> like I genuinely <laughs> laughed every time the small bladder came up and the fact that that character was peeing in every single t scene that they got introduced, they always were on the toilet or stopping on the side of the road. I kind of loved it. Well, this has been available uh, on demand for a while. Now it is available on Blu-ray with a 15-minute making-of documentary that talks a lot to the actors, the creative team. There's a commentary track. Uh, that's about it on here. But hey, what the hell? It's a small horror film. What do you expect? Maybe 20 years from now when Blue Underground put out a lenticular-covered uh, uh, Superman's Fortress of Solitude crystal release, we'll get like a better set of extras. <laughs> but for now... That's what we get. We're going to finish up this week with another sort of car comedy that is definitely on the attack, which is The Hunt. Now, relax for a second, everyone. I know you've heard things about The Hunt. You have feelings about The Hunt without even having seen it, probably. That's because the media both on both sides of the aisle decided before they even saw this fucking film to come out and start attacking. Which, which I have to I mean, say Donald Trump is perfect for the movie. Like that, that's so <laughs> yeah. on brand for what this movie is. Like I, it, it almost makes me happy that the movie had the journey it did, even though like, no, I, I would have rather this played theaters and been a real thing, but still. And yes. Yeah. I mean, it's all about how both the right and the left need to shut up and stop talking out of their ass. <laughs> you know, am, uh, they're both obnoxious. This movie has not chosen a side. No. Well, quite frankly, eh. I don't know, like, it, fair enough. But, like, you touched on it, too. You're right. This is also the movie that pissed off Donald Trump so much that he called it out by name. So I'm, I'm going to give this movie the best marketing it could have right now, which is, if you want to piss off Donald Trump, go watch The Hunt. Um, <laughs> but yeah. the movie basically is, it's, it's another the most dangerous game kind of film about people who are hunting other people for sport um except it begins right when the hunt begins all of the characters are alt-right maga idiots who basically wake up with uh collars around their mouths so they can't talk and they're locked they find a box full of guns and a key to unlock the collars and then boom shit starts exploding and they start dying and it the the first half of this movie is actually really weird because it, it, it 
I don't want to go too much into detail, but it follows a bunch of different groups of people, and it ends up having a really weird structure until it kind of finally lands on someone who is the main character and follows them as they unravel what's going on, who's behind this, what their motivations are, and it ends up becoming more of a traditional man-hunting man horror film as that goes on without ever losing the snark. And I'd say a horror comedy. Yeah. Like, I don't think it ever gets into the realm where I would even describe it as a horror film. You're right. It's, it's not scary. It never is. No. Um, uh, I mean, not that a horror film that's not a comedy has to be sure. per se, but I don't think it's even trying that. I mean, it's, I mean, the premise being that, like, elite liberals have set this up to hunt MAGA heads, which it replies to a conspiracy theory that the MAGA, MAGA folks have that this is a thing, even though it's made clear it is decidedly not a thing. They did it because of your shouting out a fake made up conspiracy theory like okay fuck you we'll do it then yeah, how do you like it how do you like me now i wasn't gonna spoil and, that <laughs> well i mean they say pretty early on uh betty gilpin who's so great on glee one of my favorite characters on there kind of plays the lead of the prisoners who seems unclear relatively early on to what degree she's really has any interest in sharing the philosophies and mindsets of these other maga people so you're like something's wrong hillary swank is playing you know, the the third man of this film, like, oh, the leader who doesn't appear towards the end, but has a great one on one sequence with Betty Gilpin for sure. Um, Ike Varenholt is in this, Ethan Supley, Emma Roberts, Sturgill Simpson, Glenn Howerton. A lot of these people are in here very briefly because lots of people die very quickly in this movie very from the beginning. But I mean, for comedy's sake, if nothing else, I, I think in the end, I went, you know, as a comedy horror film, this is pretty good. It's pretty fun to watch. As a movie trying to say something, it's got nothing to say. It's not that it's offensive. It just has no interest in actually saying anything. It's it's like, ha ha, both sides are stupid without even taking that too seriously. Really quickly, quick call out Betty Gilpin is from Glow, not Glee. Easy mistake to make. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, Glow, yeah, you are I agree. correct. Like, yes. I think that, but the problem with that is that it's not the movie's fault. Like, I feel like we all, because of the story of what happened around this movie, went into this expecting it to be to have a stance and the movie is never really interested in that it's a people are fucking stupid who have extreme beliefs no matter who you are and like that's okay it's entirely fine to be a relatively fluffy just horror comedy that's yay people die in fun ways but you have to go in knowing that if you go into this going yeah, this is going to be a staunchly left movie attacking the right. You're going to be disappointed by the portrayal of the liberals. And if you go into this movie thinking that, yeah, this is about evil liberals, you're going to get pissed off by the portrayal of the right, of the alt-right. Like, no matter who you right. are, if you expect this to have a message, it's going to annoy you. So just go in looking for fun. Yeah, and then I think you'll actually kind of enjoy it. This is a movie I'll come back to again, Agreed. quite frankly. Yeah. It's uh, fun to watch. It was only, and it didn't take long for me to figure out that's the type of movie it was. Like, oh, this movie doesn't have any political aspirations. It's just fucking with you. It's trolling you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so to get to our final decision, which is the best, the, the pick of the week, Jaws or The Watchmen, I've got a random number generator from 1 to 50. I'm going to press the button after you give me a number. 12. And I will pick 40. Generate. Yeah, you win. Yes! <laughs> Damn, it. Damn it. I'm not displeased with The Watchmen being the pick of the week. But that is the pick of the week. Aaron was my co-critic of the week. Thank you, Aaron. You're welcome. And we will return. Or at least, I, I, I don't know. Maybe it'll be us. Maybe it'll be John Golson. I don't even know. He's actually talking about moving out away from Austin now. I don't know if that's happened or not. But anyway, 
we will be back Show. with more digital noise before you know it. Please use our links to buy the titles that we are talking about this week on the actual page, the one of us page. There's pictures of all the titles. You can click at those. Brings you to Amazon.com page. If you buy those, we get a kickback from that. In fact, if you buy anything and you start from one of those links, we get a kickback. So need a new refrigerator? Start from one of our links. Yeah. And actually, you know, buy a bunch of these. Like, a lot of these movies I would flat out recommend and buy if I didn't already own them even. <laughs> <laughs> fair no there are some really good titles this week and i guess that's it thank you very much thank you thank you aaron adieu